when we left, we left with hope. We'd built in people's minds, hope that they could conquer anything. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that spark their love of healthcare and change the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I'm doing really well. I'm really excited about you being done with your exams. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Yes, my third and final step board exam is done. It's a very exciting (laughs) moment for me. And I don't love standardized tests, so I'm definitely happy to be done with them for now. I know. You know, life is not a standardized test. (laughs) Life is definitely not a standardized test. That is for sure. But I'm so excited to be talking to you today about global health and medicine. I am too, Nicole. This is something that a lot of medical students are very interested in. And I think it's something that goes along with a sense of idealism and a sincere caring for each other and wanting to help in any ways that we can. And I know that so many medical students in my era and in your era right now, we're really interested in seeing what ways they can be helpful, not only in their local communities, but in global communities. And I'm excited that we're going to speak today to a really amazing physician who has spent her life and career working globally and supporting communities. I am so excited to be talking about this particular topic. When we think about COVID, a lot of us experienced that we couldn't travel and couldn't work globally. And a lot of us who are interested in global health, including myself, couldn't do those global health trips and either had to work remotely, which definitely is not the same thing, or we had to cancel our trips altogether. Global health has always been something that I'm really interested in, and in high school and college, I did multiple trips globally. The last one was actually Thailand, and I think the more that I learn about global health and how we as physicians or as health educators can enter this space, I think we need to be thoughtful, and it isn't something where we can just jump in and go to someplace randomly for a month and bring in our own ideas and then just leave. We have to recognize that we're entering a space that is a community with their own ideals, their own ways of doing things, and we really have to come in with humility and come in with an understanding that we are trying to work with those who are on the ground and those that live there and find a solution that is unique and works for them rather than coming in with a pre-proposed idea that wouldn't take into consideration their culture, their ideas, the way that that would work best for them. I found that this strategy is ideal because it allows for community buy-in and allows for locals to continue the efforts and continue the projects after we leave. Yes, and I really appreciate your sharing that, Nicole. You highlighted some key points. The point about cultural humility and starting with a needs assessment that comes from the community rather than from an outsider telling them what they need, and having a sense of value and respect for the community and the local people. And I love how you talked about the sustainability to be able to train people locally to continue the aspects of the program that they think are valuable for the long run. 
And I'm so excited to talk to someone today who's a physician who's done so much for so many communities around the world. I'd like to introduce Dr. Joyce Hightower, who is a family physician who has spent the past decade and longer working closely with health officials and hospital staff in over 30 countries in Africa. She has also written a few novels, songs, and poetry, and she's given various presentations to help share and teach aspects of global health. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Hightower. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Nicole and Shiva. We're so excited to have you come and speak with us today. And we like to start each of our episodes asking our guests if they could share, in short, a meaningful moment or experience from a time early on in your life or in your training. I think overall, crossing medicine and all the other experiences that I've had has been the fact that when I was in high school, I went to an amazing conference that was very empowering. And there on the last night, they had a big meeting in a stadium and they turned all the stadium lights out. They handed each of us and handed out candles beforehand. And some of you have been in candle light ceremonies, but this was tremendous because we were completely in the dark in a stadium. You could see across from you, they had somebody running up, lighting each candle on the end, and you could see it spreading down the aisle. And although I couldn't see beside me, I, I had personal experience of just receiving the candle light from uh, the person next to me and seeing my candle come to life as I shared it. And after a short while, seeing this light just grow, grow, and grow until each of us was participating in lighting the entire stadium. It was quite powerful and it just really anchored in my heart the belief that if each of us does our best where we are and what we do, the world would be a lot brighter place for everyone. That is such a beautiful story. I just closed my eyes and had a visual of your description, Dr. Hightower. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Hightower, you started medical school a little later than most when you were around 30 years old. Can you tell us about your life before medical school and especially how you found your path to medicine? Well, when I was in high school, I went to see a physician. I decided I'm not going to college. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to learn stuff from people, traditional healers, and I didn't want any background. But she talked to me about the possibilities of adding so much to anywhere I would go by carrying a a medical education. And so I decided I was going to be a doctor. So then I started high school my senior year, and then I went through all the process of getting into a university. And then when I got into the university, I went through pre-med. And then my dad died. And as I was standing in his ICU room, when he was getting weaker and weaker, I I almost fainted. They had to escort me out. And I go, okay, you know what? This is not a good thing for a doctor. And I said, you can't be fainting when you go in to see your patients. So I had also applied for a year abroad. And so I left deciding that I was not going to go to medical school. When I got back, I was going to look and see what I could do. And so I went all over the world mostly in the region of Africa, but I did went all over Europe and Scandinavian countries, just a lot of places. And I was really seeing medical professionals and the need for medical professionals all over the world. But I had then started having children and I was distracted the next year by an offer to teach high school science in Kenya. That is the, the goal was to increase the number of science students 
who would be able to become doctors in Kenya. And that was really an interesting challenge to me. And so I decided to go ahead and do that for two years. Behind me at that high school was a little girl who always used to come over to ask me to teach me English, teach me English, because she was taking English in primary school. And so I would practice with her. And one day she came and her eye was completely infected. There was pus. And I'm just going to go, oh, my goodness, you need to do something about that. And she told me that her mom had said that they didn't have the money to buy any medicine for her eye. But that was okay because God had given her two eyes. And so that one would die, but she would be able to use the other one. And I was just frantic. I could not believe that this little girl might lose her eye from a simple infection that I'd seen this treated how many times in the United States with some drops. And then I remembered I had brought a whole medical kit with me two years before with all kinds of medicines. I didn't know where it was, but I told her, run home and ask your mom if I can give you a present. So she ran home. And in the meantime, I ran into my house. I pulled out all the trunks from under my bed and I was looking for this little kit. And I found it back in the back corner of the bottom of one of the trunks. And so when she came back, I put drops into her eyes. It said it was expired, but I said, well, you know, something's better than nothing. So I I put the drops into her eyes And then over the next three days, I followed the instructions and her eye got better and better. Each day it looked better. And so then after the three days, I told her, I said, you take this. She said it was water because it's clear. I said, you take this medicine, you tell your mom just how I did it. And you let her do it for you for these next few days. So she ran back from me just so happy. She's holding this uh, little bottle of antibiotics in her hand. She's holding it above her head like a torch. And she said, I have the magic water. And she's running away. And so when she returned in a week, her eye was completely normal. And she had the biggest smile. And she said, my eye will not die. Thank you for the magic water. And at that moment, I said, okay, you know what? If I can do this, I know nothing about medicine. Oh, just imagine if I had a little bit of training. So I decided that I would actually go back and go to school and learn how to be able to help people with a little bit more than the knowledge that I had. Wow. That is incredible. I love that. If that was only our patient's response every time we wrote for erythromycin (laughs) drops, oh my gosh, the joy of medicine. That is amazing. It sounds like that's where you had your spark in terms of your interest in global health. What made you choose to spend the most time in Africa? It's because I'd had all the experiences with community because I did my teaching and that little girl was in Kenya. And I had visited Senegal and Mali. I had taken French. I was French speaking, I will say, not fluent, but French speaking. And I'd been to all of these countries. And I was just saying, like, everywhere I went, I could see the impact of physicians in the lives of people. And so I decided that's where I could probably do the best because of the French speaking and the English speaking and the sense of community I had. And Dr. Hightower, can you tell us the story about how you started a hospital in the Republic of Congo? And especially, what are the most important lessons that you learned? Yes, I'd be glad to. Well, there are two instances I want to mention. The first one is a clinic that was in a very rural area. And the closest hospital was 26 miles away on a dirt road that was totally impassable during rainy season. Couldn't even get down it. And was bad even during dry season. So I was the only doctor in the intimate space 
for 26 villages around where we were. And we didn't have any money. The people were rural farmers and very rarely did you actually see money. And so they couldn't pay us in return. And of course, we couldn't buy medicines. We couldn't buy any materials for taking care of people, IVs and things like that. And so I decided to start a barter system. And I told them, if you will bring vegetables so we could pay our staff, because we couldn't pay our staff, we weren't getting any money. So I said, you can bring vegetables, you can bring this, and we'll put a price on each of these things. And then that will be your payment. And so they were very excited about that. And then we took uh, some land down by the little stream down the hill from the big clinic. And we told the young people from each of these 26 villages, if you will clear the land, plant the seeds, and we grow things that we can really have a lot to send to market. And they had people going around in trucks buying vegetables. I said, then we will give free mosquito nets to the people in your village. We will do this. And and they they were going like, with no money? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do this for us. So when we did our harvest, we got enough to buy all of those things and they could put it in an account so that if anybody did get sick, it would be paid for ahead of time. So we started that system there. And our staff was fed for the first time. They were really happy. And we had people able to come access healthcare. So more people started coming, which means we had to clear more land down at the bottom. And the second one I want to talk about is there was a brand new state-of-the-art hospital built in the capital of Kinshasa. And all of the hospitals operated in systems that had been from colonial times. There was no updates of protocol systems of keeping records or goals. And so I could not see repeating that. So they asked me to come in and set up the hospital. So we did, we had to make our own system for medical records. We had to do a lot of things ourselves and set up the infrastructure of the hospital. And we had the opportunity to set the standard for that country and for the African region. Well, with our HR staff hiring management, cleaning protocols for departments and, and setting up a written documents as opposed to what somebody kept in their head over the years. And unfortunately, there was a lot of resistance to this because the experts wanted to be the only ones who knew things, could keep their power. And they wanted to have the last word to say, no, you didn't do that right. So that was the biggest problem that I faced at that time. But we had created a desire in the hearts of the people being served, even with doing our own little HMO, where if you paid $1 a a month, you could have free access to get medications for 10 diseases. It wasn't unlimited, but... They had such a desire now because they had seen tasted access that even when we left, they said, okay, we're going back to the old system. And they said, oh, oh, no, you're not. No, 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 no. If you don't do what they did, we're not coming to you. We will go to someone else. And so it is still in existence today after years and years, and it's still considered a very good place to go get care because other people who came into that system had the same heart. But it was difficult in changing the provider's mentality, whereas the community was easy to do. Wow, incredible. I mean, talk about sustainability. You created your own agriculture to be able to self-sustain financially your hospital system and then to think about creating your own HMO with people buying and paying ahead of time for medicines is just incredible. I think that it sounds like you really were working from scratch. And it sounds like community buy-in was one of the major 
things that empowered your program to be successful and be sustained even after you left the country. I'm curious, you are trained as a family physician. How is primary care different in Africa in your experience? I was astounded. (laughs) I guess the whole attitude is if it's not broken, don't bother with it. So preventative care and other things just aren't even a thought. Uh, One of the first answers I used to get when I said, why isn't this person going to the hospital? And their answer was, you go to the hospital when you're dying. You don't go when you're still not dying. It's a formal thing so that everyone will know that you did everything you could for your loved one before they died. They don't see it as something that's to be of help. It's just a formality. And when I started, only about 25% of the population ever saw a medical professional during their entire life. They had traditional healers and they had herbalists that serviced much of the needs in the community. But many people also suffered a lot knowing that there was a solution somewhere, but that they didn't have access to it, either because it was too far away or that it required money. And then on the other hand, you had people who were affluent. And when they got sick, they had access to going out of the country. Even the government workers, political workers had insurance that the country paid for them to go out of the country to get health care. But it, that was really, really costly. So again, when we built this one hospital, state of the art, even the president came and said, can we send our people here? Because <laughs> it's going to be same level but a lot less expensive. So back to the original, but the concept for regular care, follow-up, preventative care was not the standard. It's getting less and less like that with more access and more people trying to find ways like we did with the token, they call it token system, especially in the rural areas. Dr. Hightower, can you share a special patient or family experience that you remember as being an especially touching one for you when you first started this work that you've done in many countries in Africa? Yeah, I think the one that just really turned me around was the story of we were doing medical missions and we went to Malindi an island off the coast of Kenya, which is part of Kenya. And one of the providers walked out, they thought, hey, you have to come see, you have to come see this. And so I went and there's this little boy who the mom said that he'd been wrestling with a friend and he got a poke in his eye with his pencil. And then it had gotten red and then gotten gray and pus had come out at the beginning, but now there was no pus. And she said, but he couldn't see out of that eye. And so she had told him, why were you wrestling? And she said, but now he was getting headaches and had fever. And that's why she walked with him there since early morning. So, you know, we're thinking this guy, the infection, he's an infected eye full of pus and it's spreading back up his nerve and it's going to give him meningitis and he's going to die. So then I said, okay, okay, we can uh, send this, give her the money. And uh, it turned out the mom refused to take money to take him to the hospital She said she couldn't go. And then we said, well, why do you understand that your son is possibly to die? And she said, then he will have to die. He should not have been wrestling. So we thought she was really calloused. And then I just said to myself, I said, you know what? This is a mother. She walked all the way here to get him here. There's something we're missing. And so I asked her, I said, why will you not take your son? I said, we can even take him in the vehicle, so long as we can get back, go back across to the ferry, we can take him in our van to the house. We can take you, we can provide transportation, get there. And she goes, no, I can't go. So I said, so what is going on? And she said, at home, she had 
four children she had locked in the house so that no one could disturb them. No one could take advantage of them. That she had left them with enough food for that day. That there were two girls who she was sure if they got hungry and walked and got out of the house, that they would be picked up immediately and trafficked. That she had a little baby that would be left there alone. And then because her son would be taken to be somebody else's servant somewhere because he's big, strong for his age, 11. So she said, rather than risk her other children who had not been wrestling and gotten her eye infected, why couldn't we just give her medicine? She saw those people leaving with medicine, leaving with medicine. And she said, why can't you do like that? So then I called the local physician over and I said, what are we going to do? I can't, I can't just let this kid die. I can't just let her walk back home with him. I said, we, we need to send the van to take her back home, get her other kids, bring all the kids here. And he goes, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> he said, no, we can't do that. So I said, so what do we do? And he said, what you can do is I have a nurse who lives near the hospital and you can send him, I'll give him the week off, send him to the hospital with your kid. He'll make sure that he gets there. And then it gets the antibody. Give me the money for $1 a day because they don't feed the patients in the hospital. We have to buy food for him and the nurse. And then you give this mom transportation money. Tell her it's to get her back home, knowing that she will not spend it for transportation. She will walk back home and use it to buy food for her kids. And then you tell her if she comes back, she will get more transportation money. And he said that will allow her to live proudly. She won't be ashamed of having accepted, you know, like a poor person, although she's a poor person, she will have some dignity and you will be able to help her out with her being able to accept it. And this little boy can go to the hospital. And I said, that's amazing. I said, we'll do it. And so we took up a little collection among all of us and we found enough money. And he said, when she comes back, if he lives, I will make sure that, you know, he has the follow-up he needs because I have a friend there who's a specialist and infectious disease. And he said, I will just make sure that he takes care. He'll give the care free. And so he just wheeled and dealed and everything worked out. And so we went on to see the other people. We worked past midnight, but um, it just changed my mind to when someone does something that I think is totally illogical and they're refusing to do something that is just so important to just step back and say, why? Explain to me why. Maybe we can figure out a way. And I've had patients who have been not in those severe situations, but in different situations where they could not see that what I was saying was applicable to them or possible to them. And because I stepped back and said, what are the hurdles that we were able to work something out and move forward for the benefit of everybody? Wow. That is such a powerful example of patient-centered communication and really just asking those open-ended questions. Why? Tell me more. And it's oftentimes very surprising what results. So thank you so much for sharing that. I am sad to transition because I feel like we are just getting such powerful stories. You've also worked with the World Health Organization and helped fight Ebola in West Africa. Tell us about this time and specifically what was the most challenging time and what was the most uplifting for you? Everybody in WHO I was working for in Zimbabwe had to do six weeks in one of the countries affected. There were two English-speaking and one French-speaking country in the Ebola pandemic. And so I went for my six weeks because 
I didn't have money for the programs I was going to do outreaching patient safety. So I went for my six weeks. And when I got there, I found out that there were healthcare workers still getting sick from Ebola and dying from being exposed in their hospitals. I'm asking, how did it even get in the hospital? What, what, what is going on? So I did some research and I found out there were no emergency rooms to triage. There were no points of screening or anything. So I told my boss in Geneva, I said, you know what? Just send me home. There's no way in six weeks, this is going to be fixed. There's no way. And so they said, okay, how much time do you need? And so I said, I need at least three months. And so they say, you got it. I'm going like, really? Okay. So we didn't have money. WHO does not build buildings, but UNDP does. And so I went to them and I said, we need to build emergency rooms. Do you know that when a sick person comes to the hospital, The person collecting money at the front desk says, what's wrong with you? They listen to the symptoms, non-medically trained, and decide you either go to the urgent center in the hospital for general medicine or for surgery. They make that decision. And then you pay according to that, and then you enter the hospital. There's no vital signs. There's no other questions about what symptoms. I said, we need a place where if they do have Ebola symptoms, we can isolate them and we need a place to to take their vitals. We need all of these other places and we need the PPE and we need this. And they're going like, oh my goodness, you're dreaming. And I'm going like, yeah, I'm dreaming. As Harriet Tillman say, in order to have a dream realized, you have to have a dreamer. I said, I'm a dreamer. And so they're going like, yeah, you're really a dreamer. So we got the money. I said, just give me enough money to build 10 of these real small ones. We'll get the blueprints approved and everything. They gave me money for 10 of these largest hospitals, training hospitals in the country. And we set up a system. We, we got money. Every time I needed something, I said, okay, who's going to give me this? Who's going to think like that? Hey, Tower, you are just, what is wrong with you? I go, we just got to do this. I only have three months. I only have three months to get this done. And so we, in a very short time, trained hospital healthcare workers with a triage system and with them coming in and the vitals being taken and the protocol for that, getting PPE. And training, not just the hospital workers, but all the people, the midwives, the pharmacists, we trained everybody and we were having trainers train other people. We were renting buildings right and left, have classrooms. And within a short while, within one month, we had reduced the hospital workers' infection to zero. We started doing other things through the ERs, we started reducing community cases. We were able to get other funders to give us PPE and we wrote books. We, I had a team that I, uh, they were supposed to be there for six weeks. I said, get your organization to let me have you for two more months. And we need to write this protocol book. We need to write the curriculum. And they were saying, you can't write curriculum in this sort of a time and get it approved. I said, okay, so what can we do if we want to use it? They go like, well, well, that only happens for pilot. Bro- a pilot? We can do a pilot. We can do a pilot. Just make this a pilot. Make it a pilot for every single type of healthcare worker there is. And then tell them they'll give us an evaluation at the end. We educated everybody. And within a very short time, our country... French-speaking country that I was working in, had reduced to the point that we were the first one to be Ebola-free. We had done the impossible because I had a good team. I had people from all over the world. Everybody was there 
working together. And I said, okay, you guys are really good at this. You worked in university. So please write the curriculum for this. You guys are this, please do this. I go, your logistics, do this, do the protocol for shipping all the PPE and all that. So recognizing what people's gifts are and letting them shine at their gift for the benefit of not just our team, we weren't doing it for credit because we all left there going back as experts to our own countries, but we were doing it because we had a mission and we had been given permission and the authority to do that. So at the end of this time, one of the physicians who had worked with me said, do you know what that guy did? Who was the head of the Ebola. He went and he told people, we have the best Ebola prevention program in the entire world, you know, because we had printed all of these books for curriculum and everything. And It was something that I was very, very proud to be a part of and very happy to be the head of that team that did that for WHO. When we left, we left with hope we'd built in people's minds, hope that they could conquer anything. International medicine is very, very rewarding because you help nations do things that they're able to do, but just not having the ideas to do. And sometimes just giving an idea and letting them work out the details is the best thing. Dr. Hightower, I think we could listen to your stories all day, (laughs) all day, every day, because they're so inspiring and so uplifting. And just to hear your ability to have vision, to have a sense of perspective of what's going on and to work with everybody and have such a can-do-it attitude, you know, that we can make things work and just the energy and passion for making the right things happen, whether it's an individual like the little boy or the little girl or a whole community with Ebola, a whole country, it's really remarkable. And just, I I feel very inspired hearing your stories. Harriet Tubman, you inspired me to look that up as you were speaking. Every great dream begins with a dreamer always remember you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. And you really embody that in your experience and your stories. So thank you so much for sharing that along the line of the spirit of you, the person that went and said, I I need more than six weeks and I'll still make it happen. I mean, you're making the impossible happen and you did with a team, never alone. Can you Tell us a little bit about yourself and what has helped you get through the most difficult of these times, because obviously these have been very difficult times. The end result is amazing. The journey must have been incredibly difficult to see the kinds of suffering and and death and pain and sorrow that was a part of these journeys. So share with us what helps you to get through the difficult times and the most difficult of them. I know at the bottom of my heart is the belief that I'm here every day for a reason. And that my joy comes from discovering that each day. And at the end of the day saying like, wow, okay, that was it. That was it. And that's what we did. And it doesn't matter whether the difficulty is coming from politicians or people in the community or from your bosses in foreign countries or anything. It's it's still me keeping my eye on the fact that there's something very important I need to do today. And I'm not going to let anybody stop me from getting that done. That conviction that there is something special for me. If I'm alive, there's something I'm supposed to be doing that is very, very special to help someone. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate your conviction. I really appreciate just your life force and your ability to focus on the joy and focus on using your special gifts to make change and create the change. And 
you started an orphanage in the Republic of Congo. Can you tell us how you pivoted and started that orphanage? Yeah, unexpectedly. I was just minding my own business. (laughs) And I kept noticing in Kinshasa the increasing amount of kids on the street begging. I, I didn't know why, but it was becoming more and more violent and more and more kids all together. And so I said, someone needs to do something about this. Someone needs to do something about this. And I kept saying that. And then I was working with training people on entrepreneurship, if you can believe this, in Congo and in the Republic of Congo, which is the a small country next to it. And I was asking one lady, I said, do you know why there are so many? She goes, oh, yeah, it's because these ladies are kicked off of their farms if their husband dies. They're kicked off the land and then they have no place to go because their family wants to reclaim the land for their family. And even the house that they help build or anything else like that, they they claim that as their own so that they don't lose the land. And these women, if they have any backbone, they're, they're kicked out. And so they come here looking for work. And if they don't find work, then they become sex workers or they're just beggars on the street or they find something in order to get money for their kids. And when their kids get bigger and it's not enough money, then these boys join gangs so that they can steal money or somehow get money to help their moms or else just leave their moms and go in with these groups that are now supplying their needs. They they have a sense of belonging and a strong sense of power. And so they said, and once these children are on the street for more than a year, they are never going to be able to go back to regular life. We put them in boarding schools, we put them in this, and then they escape. See, I'm going to get back to that that life that I knew because it was just such an exciting life for them. So if we're going to help kids, we have to get them before they've been on the street for a year. So I kept working it out in my mind and I got a job so that I had a little extra money, bought the land. And I said, okay, so we will have orphans. The state has to declare them as an orphan so that somebody can't come and take them back after two or three years. We started and our first little boy was six months old when he came and his mom had tried to kill him because he kept crying, even though she fed him. So she thought he was not a good child. We took that little boy in And then when we started the program for training the widows, they said, one of your prerequisites is that we have one child under six. What are we supposed to do with that child when we come to class? And I'm going like, that's a very good question. I hadn't thought of that. So I said, okay, we'll take care of your kids. And we couldn't just babysit them. So we started a preschool. And then, of course, they came back the next time and said, well, you can't just kick us out after six months. It's a nine-month school year. And so we said, okay, well, if you do something, just a token, We'll let your kids continue school. And then now, as time passed, these moms have gone on to do other things and with their training and trained over 100 widows. And we have 17 orphans now. The youngest is three years old and the oldest is 12. And we have, for the last two years, our sixth grade graduating class has scored so high on the national exam because, you know, you have to take an exam at sixth grade in order to be able to go to seventh grade. That our school, which is very, very small and very, very poor, and we're charging people to bring a jerry can of water, that's their school fees, that through our 5013C here in the United States, we're able to raise money to take care of at least the first 10, and then it was difficult for the next seven. And now, because we have 120 students in the school, it's a lot harder. So we're asking for donations from people, but... The fact that we just wanted to start to help a couple of orphans, and now we have 
no more room. Oh, the school is taking up all of our classes, all of our space for the orphans. And we're trying to build a building on the side so we can get them out of the orphans building to school and then be able to accept more orphans because the, the need is increasing, especially the economic situation. A lot of uh, girls who are, get pregnant during school walk in, deliver their baby and walk out. And so these babies have no parents. They don't want anybody to know they were pregnant. They can't take care of the kid. If they're ever going to continue school, they cannot have that child with them. So a lot of difficult choices. And so we wanted an alternative. One of our babies was HIV positive and the workers at the social affairs. Now you want to touch the baby, they put her on the floor, on a cold floor, on a blanket at 10 days old. And so when our head went to get that, he said, I was crying, mama. The baby was so cold. She was shivering. Of course, with treatment, that baby is HIV free today and has gone on with her life. Dr. Hightower, thank you so much. I'm just looking at Nicole's face and my own face on Zoom, and we're so touched by your stories. You are proving in every story that you share that even though you are just one person, you're inspiring, I think, Nicole and myself, and I hope people who are listening, even if you're just one person, you can do a whole lot. I haven't heard any I can't from you. It's always, what's the problem and what can we do to help it? And again, it's really incredibly inspiring to hear you. I feel motivated. I mean, from food, water, shelter, education, you know, a home and health. I mean, these are all such basic needs that everyone should have and love and kindness and a community. And again, you've, you've really contributed so much to that. And just by hearing your stories, you're inspiring. I think a lot of us to want to do more as well. Somebody once said, uh, the bad news is you're only human, but the good news is your humanity counts for a lot. You're just such a wonderful example of that. And you have yourself a very special feeling about community, about working together with others and being together both in Africa and in the United States. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about what role you feel a sense of community has for you in your life and in your practice to this day? Well, I, I'm just constantly, constantly in awe of the power of people when they are united. When the community focuses on getting something done, it will get done. And there's not going to be anything that will stop them because you can't kill all of them. And the two remaining will get it done. And to know that Every community has enough resources to do everything that's needed. And it doesn't mean that we haven't gone into communities where there are no nurses and we train someone to do that one thing. And if uh, there's a need for it, someone will say, oh, we need the one who does that. And they will come and do it perfectly. So the fact that people unite to get an overall project done is, I think, the, the essence of what God has shown us our world should be. And that it is the, the sense of community that is that you belong to a purpose with people that you're put in the midst of. That's right where you should be unless you get called to someplace else. And there you can do your greatest work. That one little candle that you let someone light for you and that you light for the next person. Everyone doing their part makes the whole stadium come to life. And so I think that that's why I think community is so powerful. And I've seen this happen time and time again in all the countries I've worked in somehow, some way, even here in the United States, I've seen people who will do something as a group of people that's impossible. 
And the whole idea comes from, we know it's not possible, but if it were, what would be the first step? That is such a wonderful question to remember going forward, I think, for any project that we want to do and also for individuals and whatever change I might need to make in my life. You know, for example, I can just see asking a patient who thinks they can never quit smoking. If you could, if it were possible, what would be the first step? I think that's such a wonderful learning point for me. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing one of our last questions today. Really kind of wraps back around to what Shiva and I were talking about in the beginning. And as a learner and as a resident interested in global health, I often fear that since I can't commit a large amount of time or be a full-time global health physician, I may not be able to have a positive impact that is lasting and meaningful in a global setting. Before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion surrounding volunteer tourism. Based on your experience, how can we as learners and even those who are attendings be mindful when planning global health excursions and missions? I think a lot depends on the place, the resources, mission staff, where you're going, local staff, and even up to the point where you might decide to do a one-year internship for WHO in Geneva or at any of the other places where you can. And there are hospitals in Kenya and other places where you can go and spend two months, six months, if you would like to go and spend some time there. Making sure it's not just you going, but that it is always a local facility that has a goal that you're coming to help them fulfill or a clinician if they're out in the rural areas. And they should have a big say in what part you will play. In the beginning, you could contact a member of the congregation of a church or of a clinic or of a hospital or of a medical school somewhere. And they will give you a clear idea of what the facilities that are available are, what would be the goal to accomplish and the expected results and reports, because a lot of people come and do stuff and go away and they tell everybody else about it. They'll publish papers, but that country doesn't get the benefit. Uh, What would be the most helpful thing for you to bring with you? Because we think, okay, I got my head, I got my brain, so that's it. No, there are other things that you could bring that would be really inexpensive or books or things like that that would be helpful, even though they might be two and three years old. And what would be the most useful thing for you to leave when you leave there? Not just to use while you're working there, but to leave when you're gone. So if you're looking for a specific project, or you're going for a specific projects, maybe to do an outreach in rural communities and connect people with the local hospital or community. Just make sure that you don't just tell the person, okay, you have HIV, bye. You know, <laughs> make sure that you have connected with a local person who can make sure that the follow through is attainable and available as far as equipment facility or other referrals to go to higher up. And to keep in mind what happens if a result shows that that person needs immediate attention, like that little boy, we had not thought of having to rush somebody to the hospital so that you have means of transportation or finances or pay for medical care or medications. And to know that just like the jails overseas, the hospitals do not feed patients. And so that you can't just say, we're going to make sure you have money for your medication, but also make sure that they need money for food as well. And just remember that things sometimes are so different than we can imagine. I remember I walked into a room the first few months I had worked at this hospital and the lady was saying, oh, doctor, I'm so hungry. I'm going like, well, 
did you miss the meal? And then the nurse had to pull me to the side and said, we don't feed our patients and she doesn't have a family. And I'm going like, oh my goodness. Yes, we're going to feed our patients. And so he said, it's going to be a lot of money. So we'll grow the vegetables. They'll have a healthy diet. So just being sure that you're aware of that, things aren't always as you think they are and that there's a lot of room for misunderstanding or being misunderstood and coming to false conclusions as a result. So keep an open mind and be ready to learn and not just to teach or to do things, but ready to understand that these are people. People are everywhere and people work with different types of ideas and they have different circumstances. And when you go there, you are the one who's going to learn the most. In closing, Dr. Hightower, what advice do you have for students and residents who might be thinking about global health right now? I would say that you should be as close to fluent in a language besides English as you can. And the two most common languages are, of course, Spanish and French. But there are other languages that you can take and be very fluent in that would be very, very helpful. And like I was saying, keep an open mind and and yet keep focused on what you're doing to do it to the best of your ability, but not to think that you are the only one who knows anything. And ask a question. Ask a lot of questions. Ask more questions than you have to tell people. And accept these unsolicited answers. Just really ask questions about the people that are there, the people who live there, because they're going to have to be there after you're gone. I think that she was saying this earlier. Just remember that they're staying there and you are leaving and they have to be able to understand what has been done and to be able to carry it on and to explain it to other people. Don't try to change the politics of the country. Whatever you do, don't get involved in the politics. And if you, if you don't plan to be there for years, years working it out and making the changes, accept the risk of the government expelling you and having your friend get in trouble. If you're willing to risk all of that, okay, get in politics, but that's not why you're there. And if you can change something outside of politics, like give an idea, give evidence of something like that. I remember I talked to this one person about patient safety and I was telling the minister of health, one of his adjoining people. And so then I said, you know, this will, this one intervention will cut down on cholera in your country. I said, I will reduce it to 10%. He goes, oh, you will. And I said, yeah, I'm willing to put up money. I said, how much do you spend in this area? He goes, $10,000. I said, okay. Give me that $10,000. And at the end of the year, I'll give you $9,000 back. And he goes, what? And I say, yeah, I have proof. We've done this in South America. We've done this in this way. We've done this. And he goes like, really? He goes, okay, okay. Uh, I'm taking you up on that bet. And I said, done. And he goes like, really? I said, yes, I will do it. And so he goes like, but then you'll get credit for it. He goes, okay, okay. Tell me what I need to do. I'll do it. And I'm going to tell my boss that I'll, I'll, I'll reduce it. And I said, okay, fine. This is what you do here are the papers. And so then he said, I want you to talk to the budget guy. So I talked to the budget guy and I said, here's the budget that's been saved. And here's this. And he goes like, give me those reports. So just giving people information is enough sometimes to be able to help people. So not you, what you know, but what has been proven all over the world in similar circumstances. And then try to leave something of help in place so that others can continue using that particular thing after you're gone. Don't go in with something that's so idiosyncratic that you're the only one who can do it and that you haven't helped enable other people after you're gone. Keep that in mind that these are 
opportunities for you to affect generations. Take it seriously and do a good job. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I am just in awe. And I just want to say on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you so much for your service. You have done incredible and it is a better world with you in it. Thank you very much. Thank you guys very much too. You've inspired me and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Hightower. We have learned a lot from you and we're very inspired. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattopadhyay, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.